0: Chapter 3 of Walpole by John Morley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The New Reign, Whig-Sism. The accession of the House of Hanover in the person of the great grandson of James I was once called by a Whig of this generation the greatest miracle in our history. It took place without domestic or foreign disturbance. Louis XIV was now in his 78th year and his orb was sinking over a weak, impoverished and depopulated kingdom. Even he did not dare to expose himself to the hazards of a new war with Great Britain. Within our own borders, a short lull followed the sharp agitations of the last six months. The new king appointed an exclusively Whig ministry. The office of Lord Treasurer was not revived, and the title disappears from political history. Lord Townsend, was made Principal Secretary of State and assumed the part of First Minister. Mr. Walpole took the subaltern office of Paymaster of the Forces, holding along with it the Paymastership of Chelsea Hospital. Although he had at first no seat in the inner council or cabinet, which seems to have consisted of eight members, only one of them a commoner, it is evident that from the outset His influence was hardly second to that of Townsend himself. In a little more than a year, October 1715, he had made himself so prominent and valuable in the House of Commons that the opportunity of a vacancy was taken to appoint him to be first Commissioner of the Treasury and Chancellor of the Exchequer. Lord Halifax and Lord Carlyle had in turn preceded him in the latter office. Since Walpole, save for a few months after Stanhope accepted a peerage in 1717, and before Aylaby succeeded him in 1718, the Chancellor of the Exchequer has always been in the House of Commons, a change that marked one further stage in the growing ascendancy of the representative and the taxing chamber. Historians have sometimes urged that Townsend and Walpole ought now to have advised the king to bring a section of Tories into the ministry. At that date, at any rate, a policy of inclusion seems to have been practically out of the question. Passion had risen to far too high a degree of heat and violence to allow of the composition of a mixed government, even if a mixed government had been desirable. But in the interest of the national settlement, nothing could have been less desirable. A struggle for life and death had just been brought to a good end, less by design or concert than by the fortunate accident of the demise of the Queen. It would have been irrational to expect men who had only a few weeks before been ready to resort to armed force against one another, and who had just been risking their estates and their heads on a great and decisive issue, now at a moment's notice to sit down in amity round the new king's council table. Even if the Whig leaders had been free from personal repugnance, and the Tory leaders had been willing to come into the combination, it would have been the height of infatuation to prepare to face wavering parliaments, and a visibly approaching insurrection with a divided, lukewarm, or uncertain cabinet. Experience both before and after Walpole's era was entirely adverse to mixed governments. William Third tried it on two occasions, and each time it was the judgment of the best observers that the admission to place of men of doubtful allegiance only added to his troubles. Anne tried it from 1704 to 1708, and Marlborough and Godolphin found the failure complete. George II tried it when Walpole had disappeared, and no attempt to make a strong government was less successful than that made on the principle of the broad bottom. If ever there was a time when comprehension, even on a small scale, would have been at once perilous and futile, it was the quarter of a century after the accession of the House of Hanover. Besides excluding their opponents from power, the Whigs instantly took more positive measures. The new Parliament was strongly Whig, a secret committee Was at once appointed to inquire into the negotiations for the peace. Walpole was chairman, took the lead in its proceedings, and drew the report. The topics of the report were such as at the present day would figure in a motion of censure. They are a recapitulation of all the objections to be urged against the terms of the peace. Every objection was supported by extracts from authentic documents. Walpole took five hours in reading the report to the House, and the clerk at the table read it over again on the following day. It is a great political indictment, charging the Queen's ministers with deserting their allies and betraying the honor and the interests of the realm. The only truly criminal part of the accusation, that which related to secret transactions with the pretender, breaks down and was felt to have broken down the intrigue was undoubted but the intriguers and their confederates had been too discreet to leave dangerous papers behind in their desks the evidence that would have condemned them was then hidden in the dispatch boxes at st germain impeachment however was still naturally regarded as the proper process against ministers who had gravely offended a triumphant majority It was the only way then known of securing responsibility to Parliament. A Tory house in 1701 impeached Summers, Halifax, Oxford, and Portland for the part they had taken in the Spanish partition treaties of 1700. A Whig house, now 1715, directed the impeachment of Oxford, Bolingbroke, and Ormond for high treason and other high crimes and misdemeanors mainly related to the peace of Utrecht. When Walpole himself fell a generation later, 1742, there was a loud and sanguinary cry that he should be impeached. But even by that time, this way of striking a political delinquent was beginning to seem anomalous. The proceedings against Oxford and Bolingbroke are the last instance in our history of a political impeachment. They are the last ministers who were ever made personally responsible for giving bad advice and pursuing a discredited policy. And since then, a political mistake has ceased to be a crime. Warren Hastings was impeached, 1788, and so was Lord Melville, 1804. But neither case was political, for Hastings was charged with misgovernment and melville with malversation of official funds burke said in seventeen seventy that impeachment was dead even to the very idea of it and later history has shown that he was substantially in the right the explanation of the disappearance of this old political expedient is twofold a refinement in men's sense of equity gradually disclosed the hardship of punishing ministers for acts that Parliament and the Sovereign had approved, and second, the remarkable growth of the Cabinet system, of which I shall have something to say on a later page, tended slowly but decisively to substitute the joint responsibility of the whole body of Ministers for the personal responsibility of an individual Minister. To impeach or to pass an act either of attainder or of pains and penalties against the whole cabinet would be practically absurd and impossible. Walpole's share in pressing for these strong measures against the fallen enemies is matter of some doubt. Bolingbroke charges him with being their hottest advocate. There is no positive evidence either way. Walpole was a man of humane and moderate temper, But he was by no means a man averse to strike if he thought a blow required. Though he had no rancor by nature, he knew how to be relentless as a matter of business. He had been the leader in sifting the evidence before his secret committee. When somebody prophesied that the committee would end in smoke, Walpole vehemently cried out that he wanted words to express his sense of the villainy of the late Frenchified ministry. To us, to whom impeachment is almost as much of an antiquity as ordeal by fire, and in whom the treaty of Utrecht excites only historic interest and no passion, the whole proceeding may seem intemperate and impolitic. Yet a cool and sagacious bystander may very easily have thought differently. The country was in many parts unsettled. The proclamation of King George had been in some places attended by riot and disorder the church, was violent against the House of Hanover. London was so uncertain that for long after the accession, cannon were kept at Whitehall to keep the mob in awe. The Highlanders were rising. It was in conformity to the political notions of the time, as it is to those of our own time in relation to Ireland, to strike vindictive blows of this kind. Such considerations as these may well have had their weight in the ministerial decision the affair came to an abortive end. After Oxford had lain a year in the tower, it was resolved to reduce the charges against him from high treason to misdemeanor, and after another year a difference arose or was promoted by Walpole's connivance between the Lords and the Commons as to the mode of procedure. After a prolonged exchange of explanations, the Commons resolved to drop the prosecution. 1717. The opening years of the new reign mark one of the least attractive periods in political history. George I was silent, simple, and not ill-meaning. He was attentive to business, thrifty, and pacific. He had some ambition to play a high and stately part, if he had only known how. But he cared very little for his new kingdom, and knew very little about its people or its institutions. He brought over with him a couple of rapacious mistresses and a swarm of courtiers, eager for the milk and honey of the promised land. It is not surprising that violent feuds should have speedily arisen between this crew of greedy strangers and the home-bred minister from Norfolk. Walpole coarsely said of Schulenberg, afterwards Duchess of Kendal, and the elder of the two royal favourites, that she was of so venal a nature that she would have sold the king's honour for a shilling advance to the highest bidder the spirit of jobbery was insatiable the office of master of the horse was left vacant and the duchess received the salary no master of the buckhounds was appointed the emolument went into a german pocket when walpole remonstrated with the king against these outrageous venalities the king with a smile replied in the bad latin in which as neither of them knew the language of the other he and his minister were said to converse together i suppose that you also paid for your recommendations the manners of the outlandish invaders were as bad as their morals one of them once carried his insolence so far that walpole though he was in the royal presence summoning both the latin and the frankness that he had learned at eton cried out to the offender mentires impudentissime. His worst enemy was Robeton, the king's French secretary. This man, said Walpole, a mean fellow, of what nation I know not, having obtained the grant of a reversion which he designed for his son, I thought it too good for him, and therefore reserved it for my own son. On this disappointment, the foreigner impertinently demanded twenty-five hundred pounds, under pretense that he had been offered that sum for the reversion. But I was wiser than to comply with his demands." Quote. Townsend was equally resolute in resisting the importunities of the two favorite ladies for English peerages, for reversions, grants, and all the rest of the perquisites which the Hanoverians regarded as their rightful spoil. The inevitable result was the growth of a bitter enmity in the minds of the king's favorite advisers and companions, and its gradual transfusion into the mind of the king himself. Another source of danger to ministers sprang up within. Rival ambitions began to appear in the Whig camp almost as soon as the administration was formed. Townsend and Walpole stood together. They came from the same county, They had been at the same school, and Townsend had married Walpole's sister. Like Walpole, Townsend was a solid man, apt in business, assiduous, and firm, but unlike Walpole, in being hot, impulsive, and impatient. The elevation of the two new ministers is said to have given umbrage to the ambition of Sunderland. His contemporaries could not agree whether the third Earl of Sunderland was quite so bad a man as his father the faithless and unprincipled minister of James II. He hid violent passions under an austere and frigid demeanour. He sought no friends, and he affected to regard books as the only worthy companions of lofty natures. He formed an important collection of early and rare editions of the Greek and Latin classics at Althorpe, destined in a later generation to become the home of still nobler and more splendid treasures. Sunderland, fell short of money, and with a pang that none but a bibliomaniac can know, he transferred his beloved books for a sum of ten thousand pounds to his father-in-law, the Duke of Marlborough, in whose hands they became the foundation of the great Blenheim Library, dispersed not many years ago. Among other effects of Sunderland's classical reading, it had made him a fiery Republican. He even thought fit to entertain Queen Anne, with injurious reflections on the wickedness of princes. Sunderland was clever, busy, and persevering, and he was thought to be the greatest intriguer since his father. He was described, besides, as being, quote, not only the most intriguing, but the most passionate man of his time, quote. Walpole was once asked why he never came to an understanding with Sunderland. You little know Lord Sunderland, he replied. If I had so much as hinted at it, his temper was so violent that he would have done his best to throw me out of the window. Something deeper, however, than temper divided the Sunderland Whigs from Walpole. Aristocratic pride in union with republican professions has often produced the narrowest type of oligarch, and Sunderland's republicanism only meant that the wings of royal prerogative were to be clipped for the benefit of a small caste of exclusive patricians. He hated the crown, but he had none of Walpole's respect and inclination for the commons. It was no wonder that they soon fell out. Walpole once remarked how difficult it is to trace the causes of a dispute between statesmen. Some transactions of our own day furnish a striking illustration of the truth of this remark, and the difficulty of explaining such disputes would be most readily admitted by those who might seem to hold a clue. Walpole's biographer maintains that it was Sunderland's discontent and Stanhope's weakness and bad faith that lay at the bottom of the Whig-schism of 1717. Stanhope's descendant, the careful historian of those times, insists that the rupture was due to Townsend's unreasonableness and want of judgment. It is not possible at this distance of time, and with imperfect material, conclusively to settle the question. The king hated his son, and the Prince of Wales was bent on making a party of his own against his father. The foreigners hated the English ministers, and the ministers were stubbornly set against the demands of the foreigners. The cabinet, was divided by no serious dissent on principle or policy, but by the even more dangerous element of personal jealousy and dissatisfied ambition. All these conditions united to make schism inevitable. The king left his new dominion for Hanover in July 1716. His passion for his native land, like his ignorance of the tongue of the land that had adopted him, Was a piece of good fortune for constitutional government. His inability to speak English led to that important change in usage, the absence of the sovereign from cabinet councils. His expeditions to Hanover threw the management of all domestic affairs almost without control into the hands of his English ministers. If the first two Hanoverian kings had been Englishmen instead of Germans, if they had been men of talent and ambition or even men of strong and commanding will without much talent walpole would never have been able to lay the foundations of government by the house of commons and by cabinet so firmly that even the obdurate will of george the third was unable to overthrow it happily for the system now established circumstances compelled the first two sovereigns of the hanoverian line to strike a bargain with the English Whigs, and it was faithfully kept until the accession of the 3rd George. The king was to manage the affairs of Hanover, and the Whigs were to govern England. It was an excellent bargain for England. Smooth as this operation may seem in historic description, Walpole found its early stages rough and thorny. The first royal visit to the electoral dominions speedily brought to light the perils that lay alike in the hatred between father and son, and in the rivalry among ministers. The double leaven soon began to work. The Hanoverians played upon the king's jealousy of the prince, and rapidly instilled into his mind the suspicion that Townsend and his colleagues were intriguing with Argyle and the prince's party in England. It is as certain as anything can be in matters so obscure and intricate that for this charge there was no foundation, and that Walpole was justified in assuring Stanhope, with wholesome bluntness, that whoever sent over the accounts of any intrigues of this kind, or any management in the least tending to any view or purpose but the service, honor, and interest of the king, would be discovered to be, quote, confounded liars from the beginning to the end, end quote nor was it possible to cut off the politics of Hanover from the politics of Great Britain. The acquisition of Bremen and Verden from Sweden for the electorate of Hanover was approved by Walpole on the ground that the two provinces commanded the only inlets from British waters into Germany. They secured the trade with Hamburg and put a check on the molestation by Sweden of British commerce in the Baltic. When the king, however, for Hanoverian reasons, sought to make war on the Tsar of Russia, because he had invaded the Grand Duchy of Mecklenburg. Townsend declared that the nation would never consent to make sacrifices for interests that were none of theirs, and Walpole vowed that he could not raise the money. The king was furious, and his exasperation at being thwarted in his warlike designs was artfully inflamed by hints that the ministers in England were secretly striving to exalt the Prince of Wales, and to show that the business of Parliament could be as well transacted by the son as by the father. A pretext was found for the removal of Townshend from his office, in circumstances which it is not worth while here to recapitulate. They would never have been deemed adequate cause for so strong a step, if other motives had not operated, and it is impossible to acquit, either Sunderland or Stanhope, of singular disloyalty to their friends and colleagues in London. Walpole had described the situation in a private letter to Stanhope at Hanover, the prince hates us and at the same time we are almost lost with the king, having all the foreigners determined against us, end quote even the loosest form in which we can imagine the great and honourable conception of loyalty among members of a cabinet as it is now held would condemn the action of the two ministers at hanover in lending themselves to the king's designs against absent colleagues in the sharp recriminations that were exchanged between stanhope and walpole the former takes up ground with which it is impossible to feel satisfied was he stanhope asks to tell the king that townsend must continue to be secretary of state or else that the whigs would quit office in a body i really have not yet learned to speak such language to my master and i think a king is very unhappy if he is the only man in the nation who cannot challenge any friendship from those of his subjects whom he thinks fit to employ it will be observed that the question raised by Stanhope touches an essential part of cabinet government. Is the king to exercise unfettered choice in the distribution or redistribution of offices? Even if we assume that they are taken exclusively from one party, is he to command the services of individual leaders at his own discretion, and to assign them their respective offices, as to him may seem good, Queen Anne had undoubtedly acted on this principle. Walpole thought that the time had come for ministers to settle their offices among themselves. Townsend was prevailed upon for a very short time to remain in the administration as Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, then always a cabinet office. But the truce did not last. The King's favor had too evidently gone to Sunderland and Stanhope. On the proposal that the commons should vote supplies for preparations against Sweden, the Townsend Whigs showed themselves cold and disaffected. Walpole spoke coldly for the vote, but lent it no active support, and it was only carried by a majority of four. In his resentment at this narrow escape of a government measure, the king dismissed Townsend from his post the same night. Walpole was too valuable at the treasury to be so lightly parted with. Vain attempts were made to separate him from his colleague. The tender of his resignation the next morning was followed by an extraordinary scene in the royal closet. The king entreated him not to retire, and put the seals back into his hat. Walpole protested that if, as chancellor of the exchequer, he found money for the warlike designs of Stanhope and Sunderland, he would lose his credit and reputation and if on the other hand he resisted them then he would forfeit the gracious favour of his sovereign no fewer than ten times were the seals replaced upon the table the king at length gave way and walpole quitted the closet with tears in his eyes leaving his master as painfully agitated as himself there was one quarter in which the split in the Whig party and the fierce quarrel in the royal family stirred the liveliest delight. Atterbury, the conspirator who then held the see of Rochester, was now under elaborate disguise of cipher and cant names, writing to the pretender sanguine accounts of what was going on at court. From these letters we learn how high the Jacobite hopes were raised by the removal of the two ministers who were well known to be the fastest friends of the present settlement. Every piece of gossip about the dissensions between the Prince of Wales and the Duke of Hanover, as they styled King George, was magnified into a reason for the fond belief which only the inveterate fatuity of plotters in exile could have entertained, that the King would rather throw the British crown to the pretender than suffer it to devolve on his detested heir. Every movement of the public funds sent their spirits up or down as if they were bears on a stock exchange. The Tories were as elated as the pure Jacobites. They flattered themselves that the Whigs were so divided that nothing short of another rebellion could bring them together again. The city Whigs, ignorant of the personal intrigues behind the scenes, and bewildered by such rapid changes in administration, were all anxiety to know what they could mean. The truth is that the Whigs were in so great a majority that, like all parties in such circumstances, they could afford moderate quarrels among themselves. The famous Septennial Act of 1716 had secured their parliamentary majority for some years to come. It had once been among the prerogatives of the Crown to retain the same Parliament during the life of the Sovereign in Charles II, did actually keep his last Parliament for seventeen years. Such excess produced reaction, and in 1694 Parliament passed an Act limiting its normal lifetime to periods of three years. In 1716, the great exigencies of the time justified a move in the other direction and an extension of the life of a Parliament from three years to seven. The measure, which was originally designed for the special object of securing the Protestant succession at a moment of peril, had wider consequences. Speaker Onslow, the sage observer of parliamentary events, used to declare that the Centennial Bill of 1716 marked the true era of the emancipation of the House of Commons from its former dependence on the Crown and the House of Lords. Footnote cox volume one one thirty seven the act was undoubtedly one of the most important causes of the increase of that power in the house of commons on which walpole was the first minister habitually and on principle to rely meanwhile it enabled the whigs in seventeen seventeen to cut themselves in two with impunity after leaving court in seventeen seventeen Walpole remained in opposition for three years. Many blamed him for deserting the king. Many declared that it was desertion of the country and of Parliament to abandon schemes for reducing the national debt, which, as he was well aware, no successor had the ability to carry through. Walpole protested, as so many men since have protested in the same circumstances, that nothing was further from his mind than to embarrass government But when men leave colleagues in a government, they seldom see how far their departure may lead them. The spirit of party and the restlessness of a powerful nature were too strong for the practice of benevolent neutrality. While loudly disclaiming any desire to embarrass the king's ministers, he still found himself invariably compelled bitterly to resist all their measures. He opposed the mutiny bill, though its provisions were merely formal and were necessary he opposed the repeal of the schism act though he had himself once denounced it as more worthy of julian the apostate than of the protestant parliament of england so apt is party spirit to degenerate into moral paradox yet none of these excesses or inconsistencies shook his hold on parliament nor is that hold hard to understand to begin with, he showed upon occasion the moderating temper which the House of Commons always secretly respects, even in its moments of passion and of heat, and which it always recognizes when the heat has evaporated. A member had greatly offended the House by bringing against a certain set of men that charge of obstruction which has become part of the common form of party scolding in later days. A few words from Walpole were enough to save the gentleman from being sent to the Tower. Shippen, the Jacobite leader, said of the king's speech that it seemed rather calculated for the meridian of Germany than of Great Britain, and regretted his majesty's ignorance of our language and constitution. The house was furious at this uncourtly plainness, but Walpole composed the angry waves, and honest Shippen would easily have escaped, if his honesty had not taken the form, as honesty sometimes does, of obstinate contumacy. But the true basis of Walpole's power was something more positive than a moderating temper. He was a skillful manager of men, but he was also an unrivaled man of business. Wherever money was concerned, his knowledge, skill, clearness, and judgment gave him an authority that was paramount. In all these transactions, even his worst enemies had, with mortification to admit that the House of Commons relied more upon Walpole's opinion than upon that of any other member. In weighing the ordinary accusation that his immense parliamentary influence was due to gross corruption, it is well not to forget that he laid the foundations of that influence while he was in opposition and without strong party support and without any of the means of corruption. The truth is that the House of Commons has always been most wisely ready to give its confidence to men whom it believes to possess a firm, broad, and independent grasp of the great material interests of the country. The time was close at hand when neglect of Walpole's practical wisdom brought upon the nation a terrible disaster before this catastrophe arrived. Walpole was provoked to the exertion of all his powers by a proposal of the gravest constitutional moment. Sunderland was in extreme disfavor with the Prince of Wales, and he was well aware that the death of the reigning king would at once lead to his own dismissal. The center of gravity was still in the upper house, where the Whigs had a standing majority. The Prince's first step, therefore, on coming to the throne would be to strengthen the Tory minority in the House of Lords. Queen Anne, had set him a precedent in the creation of the Twelve Peers to carry the Peace of Utrecht. That this was a violent act, honest Tories admitted, but they declared that, after all, it was not to be compared with the act by which the Commons, chosen by the people for three years, chose themselves for seven. Sunderland did not shrink from taking an audacious measure to counterwork the danger in advance. Lord Stanhope was made to bring in a bill putting a close restriction on the royal prerogative of making peers. The number of peers, according to the bill, was never at any time to be enlarged beyond six over the number then existing. At the accession of George I, the total number of the peers, including the 26 peers spiritual, and the 16 representative peers from Scotland, was 207. Footnote. At the accession of William the IV, the number, including the addition of 32 temporal and spiritual peers from Ireland, had risen to 390. Stanhope's History of England, Volume Two, Forty Four. Today, the members of the House of Lords are 560. End footnote. Instead of the 16 elective members from Scotland, 25 from that kingdom were to be made hereditary. Where a failure of issue mail occurred, it might be filled up by new creation in England and by selection from the other members of the peerage in Scotland. Obviously, if such a measure had become law, it would have transformed the House of Lords into a close college, and the peerage would have become an unchangeable caste. The Lords would have acquired a fixed preponderance of power over Crown and Commons alike, and while the Crown could coerce the Commons by a dissolution, and the commons could restrain the crown by refusal of supplies, the Lords would have been beyond the reach of either of the other two branches of the legislature. That this far-reaching measure failed to become law is due to Walpole's penetration and rapidity, and by hardly any other action of his life did he set a deeper stamp upon our system of government. Formidable difficulties were in his way the king might have been expected to object to a limitation of one of the most cherished of royal prerogatives but the king hated the prince of wales and was as anxious as sunderland to clip his wings the scotch peers were won by the prospect of exchanging an elective for a hereditary seat the lords as a whole were openly or privately gratified by a measure which in limiting their numbers augmented their individual importance the bill engaged the talents of the two most delightful prose writers of the day it was defended by addison in what proved to be the final task of his life and it was attacked by Steele. why could not faction says johnson find other advocates controvertists cannot long retain their kindness for each other and every reader must surely regret that these two illustrious friends after so many years passed in confidence and endearment, in unity of interest, conformity of opinion, and fellowship of study, should finally part in acrimonious opposition. The spirit of faction was too busy and too hot for these pensive regrets, and no effort was spared to forward the ministerial design. The king's name was freely used, Sunderland told everybody that the king wished the bill, that the Prince of Wales would otherwise do mad things when he came to the throne, that if the Whigs rejected it, their party would be forever undone. Bribes and threats were employed with equal profusion. All this took the heart out of the opposition Whigs. They held a meeting at Devonshire House, where Walpole found them lukewarm, indifferent, and out of spirits. He at once took a high tone, protested against any weakness, and used all the topics that are the common property in all ages of all militant leaders of opposition, pressing sluggish adherents to make a fight. Public opinion, he said, was rising against the bill. The country gentlemen were waking up to the insult implied upon their class by a measure which would shut the door of the House of Lords in their faces. He had himself overheard a country gentleman with not more than 1,800 pounds a year Vow with great warmth to another country gentleman that though he had no chance of being made a peer himself, he would never consent to lay his family under the ban of perpetual exclusion. Finally, he used the universal and irresistible clencher that it was a splendid opportunity of weakening and discrediting the government. Quote, Even if I am deserted by my party, he said, winding up his animated remonstrance, I myself will singly stand forth and oppose it." A lively altercation followed, but such high and inspiriting firmness in a political leader with an accepted character for judgment is always sure to carry the day. The party came over to Walpole's opinion, and he further justified it by a speech whose qualities the historian does not overrate in declaring it to be one of the most eloquent and masterly ever delivered in the House of Commons, whether we judge it by the impressions of the time or by the effects of the report of it upon our own minds. Footnote. This famous speech is given in outline by Cox, chapter 18. End footnote. There is nothing in it comparable to that superb passage in which the greatest writer of the century, in its last decade, defended a natural aristocracy. Footnote. Appeal from the New to the Old Whigs, page 217, edition 1818. Nevertheless, it is an excellent setting for what a first-rate judge of our own day used to describe as the very best parliamentary argument he knew, excepting Mr. Gladstone's speech on the taxation of charities. Walpole's reasoning, and the energy with which it was urged, led to the rejection of the bill by a triumphant majority of 269 against one hundred and seventy-seven. End of chapter three. Recording by Pamela Nagami.